Welcome. You are listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's always better to hear it live, this is a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. Enjoy our latest installment. Shabbat Shalom. Butterflies and beer halls may not be the most obvious things that come to mind when I speak the names Kanye and Kyrie, but as I've been following the news this past month, it's been these images to which I have returned again and again. For those without access to technology, let me explain, or given the time constraints, let me sum up. About a month ago, Kanye West tweeted his intent to, quote, go DEFCON 3 on Jewish people, one of a series of anti-Semitic comments made by the rapper, record producer on television, radio, and social media, hate-filled remarks, rantings, and ravings, which have gained traction on the internet. Kanye is right about the Jews, Banners have been hung on L.A. freeway overpasses and projected onto the wall of a Jacksonville football stadium. To the credit of the ADL and other advocacy organizations, a number but not all of Kanye's corporate relationships have distanced themselves from him and his bile. Meanwhile, here in New York, Brooklyn Nets guard Kyrie Irving posted his support for a documentary film espousing anti-Semitic tropes, including that Jews are responsible for the slave trade. The basic sequence of events since the posting begins with Kyrie's initial refusal to disavow his support of the film, followed by a non-apology apology if he had inadvertently hurt anybody, followed by a more fulsome and coordinated decision to stand against anti-Semitism with the ADL, followed by an axe to amended fence refusal to disavow anti-Semitism, followed by his being suspended on Thursday night by the Nets. Neither story, Kanye or Kyrie, is easy to track in their particulars, never mind together. A busy week for my friend Jonathan Greenblatt and his colleagues at the ADL a whole lot of Jew hatred shared on the internet to hordes of Twitter followers whose numbers, as my brother pointed out to me earlier this week, far out exceed the population of the Jewish community itself. This morning, I have no interest in unpacking the psychopathology of Kanye and Kyrie, the former who has said that slavery was a willed choice and the latter quite literally a flat earther. There are no doubt a number of reasons not to speak to the news at all, not the least of which being that to do so somehow keeps the story going. For those not on Twitter or other social media platforms, one might rightfully wonder how serious the problem actually is. Some have cautioned me against speaking out, saying that doing so focuses our attention on one particular strain of anti-Semitism when the real danger comes from white nationalists, from Iran, from the progressive left, 
are from any number of places, and calling out the hatred of two prominent African Americans, all we are doing, one person suggested, is thrusting our respective communities into hardened defensive postures. Besides, some might say, some have said to me, Rabbi, you've spoken out repeatedly in defense of free speech. We may be repulsed by what's being said, but as a supporter of the First Amendment, don't people have the right to say what they want? These are not government officials, just foul-mouthed record producers and athletes. It's not the first time, it won't be the last time that someone with a megaphone spews hate against our people. Sticks and stones, Rabbi, it's just words. Talk to us about something more pleasant, like the elections in Israel. <laughs> Which I will. Not this week. It's because I've heard such sentiments from within the community. It's because I fear that my silence on the subject may be misinterpreted to signal that I believe that ours is an hour where it's best to stay quiet, that this morning I want to speak about anti-Semitism, but not only about anti-Semitism. This morning I want to talk about the rhetoric of hate more broadly, about where it could lead, about the importance of speaking out, about butterflies and beer halls. Proud, historically minded, and thick-skinned as I am as an American Jew, it neither surprises me nor scares me to hear a slur from an anti-Semite. I'm saddened. I wish it were not so. And I condemn hatred of all kinds, especially that which is directed at me and my people. But I'm not a naif. Anti-Semitism existed long before my entry into this world and will exist when I leave it. And this morning is not the time or the place to address the etiology of the world's most ancient hatred. But what I fear is the butterfly or the butterfly effect. You may remember learning in junior high the theory attributed to Edward Lorenz how a tornado in one part of the world can trace its origins all the way to an inconsequential flutter of a butterfly's wing in another part of the world. That small causes may have large effects in ways that could never have been anticipated. Words may hurt some, words may not hurt others. But the sticks and stones that hurt us all never begin with just sticks and stones. They begin with words. The rhetoric of hate never stays as just rhetoric. Last week, here in America, we observed the four-year memorial of the 11 slain in the attack on Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue, an assault perpetrated by a domestic terrorist radicalized by online hate. Yesterday, in Israel, it was the anniversary observance of the 1995 murder of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, whose assassination was a culmination of years of incitement, extremist language, and demagoguery. No matter what happens with the findings of the January 6th Commission, no matter what we discover in the coming days about the attacker of Nancy Pelosi's husband, we know that words are never just words. We are living in the midst of a perfect storm of forces, the surge in online hate, the dissemination of untrue information, the narrow casting of our national conversation, the erosion of democratic norms, the heightened alienation and isolation of the individual, the increased access to tools of violence, and as of last week, a total unknown 
regarding what guardrails, if any, will remain on Twitter, the primary platform of the good, bad, and ugly of far too many of our people's information. Anti-Semitism isn't the only hatred out there. No different than a pogrom can be traced to a blood libel, the spike in anti-Asian violence has its roots in the false and reckless attribution of COVID to an entire people. To know that words never just stay words is a truth that transcends faith, race, or ethnicity. Jews just happen to be a people who know this bitter truth firsthand, who know that our persecutions in Egypt did not begin with slavery, but by being labeled as the other by Pharaoh, who knows that banners declaring Jews are our misfortune, or that Jews better get their act together, is a beginning, not an end point. There is a discernible line from the online news of this past month to yesterday's FBI alerts about credible warnings of violence against Jewish institutions in New Jersey, about anti-Semitic flyers distributed on the campuses at which both my children attend. One need not prove direct causality to be concerned. It doesn't have to be Germany in the 1930s to be dangerous. I neither fear nor care to dignify the rantings and retreats of those who traffic in online hate. I just fear and care about the butterfly effect, about what happens when that hatred enters the alienated head of an individual who owns a gun. All of which is why it's not just butterflies I'm thinking about this week, but beer halls. We pause this week, every year, to observe the anniversary of Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, how on November 9th, 1938, state-sponsored mobs ransacked homes, hospitals, schools, and synagogues throughout Germany, a date often identified as the beginning of the end for European Jewry. Here at Park Avenue, we'll gather together for a night of music and memory. But as those with a textured historic sensibility know, this week also marks the anniversary of Hitler's Beer Hall Putsch in Munich. How on the evening of November 8, 1923, in a beer hall in the Bavarian capital, a young Adolf Hitler silenced and seized control of the crowd and politicians present with a pistol shot in the air. The push failed and Hitler was jailed, but it would be during that year in jail, effectively a sabbatical for him, that Hitler would write Mein Kampf and that the Nazi party would shift center stage, that Hitler's profile would be elevated from house painter to national hero, eventually leading him to become chancellor of Germany just 10 years later. Not November 9th of 38, but of 1923, the Beer Hall Putsch. That was the beginning of the end. And while there are many lessons to be learned both in here in America and in Israel on this anniversary, not the least of which being that fringe mobs don't stay fringe forever, the lesson I wanna focus on comes by way of Michael Brenner's stunning new book on the rise of Nazism entitled In Hitler's Munich. Brenner's focus is not just on the hatred of the anti-Semites preceding Hitler's putsch, but on the inaction of so many in the lead up to that night. How that September, when in Munich, the Sukkot of the Jewish community were burned and the windows of Munich's Ohel Yaakov synagogue were shattered, 
somehow the perpetrators could not be identified. How when a film based on Lessing's play, Nathan the Wise, was premiered and an atmosphere of pogrom prevailed, rather than restoring order, the officer in charge of public security criticized the film for its positive depiction of Jews. How when a district rabbi called on the government to respond to acts of anti-Semitic remarks in a public spa to signal that such behavior was not tolerated, the request was also refused for fear that such a public statement might signal Bavaria to be hospitable to the Jews. The list goes on and on, but the point is one and the same. Brenner describes a world of permissible anti-Semitism, of institutionalized anti-Semitism, the banalization of hate, the tacit complicity of those authorities, officials, and clergy who are charged with maintaining the safety of its citizenry and providing a moral voice. Hate, which was left unchecked by Munich citizenry and the citizenry of the world, and thus left to develop into radical, racial, and state-sanctioned anti-Semitism, an anti-Jewish journey that would find its fulfillment in the crematorium. History may not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. At our own peril, does the Jewish community stay silent in this hour? Of course, of course, we have to build bridges of understanding. That's a long game. But right now we're playing defense. Right now we have to throw flags on the field. We have to leverage our social and political capital to fight hatred and defend our people when we see hatred voiced. If I can turn the mirror onto our own community, it's high time that we stop giving people a pass on their hate because they're good on Israel or good on progressive politics or good on any issue. It doesn't matter if the anti-Semitic flyer or fist comes from a white nationalist or a campus leftist. It threatens just the same and it hurts just the same. Anti-Semitism needs to be called out no matter from where it emanates. Those who hate us know that in dividing us, we become weaker. And it's never just words. It's never just nonsense. As Sartre wrote, never believe that anti-Semites are completely unaware of the absurdity of their replies. If you have the means to support the ADLs and AJCs of the world, then do so. If you can volunteer your time towards such causes, then do so. If you hear an off-putting, off-hand remark in your office, in the line at the grocery store or otherwise, then be that person, be that upstander to say something and know that the most important thing about the coming week is not the anniversary of Kristallnacht or the Beer Hall Putsch, but election day, this Tuesday. Vote in this election, vote in every election, vote for those who stand up against anti-Semitism for those who defend our democracy. This week, Abraham, the founding father of our people, is called on to step forward, to be a blessing so that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Rabbi Shimshon Raphael Hirsch interprets a verse to mean, I will bless each nation in accordance with the respect that it shows the Jewish spirit. To defend the Jewish people, to fight anti-Semitism is a fight for our own well-being. It's also a fight for the very soul of our nation. May each one of us and all of us together rise up to the calling of the hour so that our people and our nation continues to be deserving recipients of the blessings of God.
Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. See you in shul.